Well, <laughs> I guess God knew who really needed some church this morning, didn't he? Yeah, I guess the Lord knew. Oh, we could talk about what's going on in your lives later. No, I'm just kidding. But man, thank you for joining us because we are gathered as always around the word of the gospel in God's word by the Holy Spirit to be set free, to be set free in Christ. And the chorus of that beautiful new song we just sang summed it up. I love when the chorus sings the whole sermon. You still get a sermon, but now you are better prepared. For God loved the world. He sent his son. Whoever believes in him will live forever. The power of hell defeated. Now I'm walking in freedom because God so loved the world. Now what a stark contrast that is from the judgment we so often feel and so often give. Have you ever been judged? Has anyone ever passed judgment on you in matters indifferent, in matters of preference? Certainly not in the church. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, wait, you're here, and so am I. And so wherever we gather as human beings with Hearts, even hearts that are being transformed into the image of Christ day by day. This is the reality of our wrestling with God and with one another. Have you ever felt that? I mean, you're just, you're doing it wrong. I relate to this. I, Caitlin, my wife, and I have talked a lot about this, how I'm kind of prone toward a critical spirit. I can be critical about how things are done, which, you know, may in some ways be about her, but it's definitely about me. And my need for control and insecurity and not really walking in the freedom of Christ. To be honest, it stinks to feel disqualified. There's a story that some of you may be familiar with about a Chicago land pastor named James McDonald. In 2018, he spent a few weeks every morning going to various of his seven church campuses, a huge megachurch, you know, 10, 20,000 people, dressed up as a homeless man. And he wasn't doing it in any way to demean those who are precariously housed. I'm not sure how PC this little experiment would play in our day, but his goal was really to see how would he be treated at his own church if he showed up as someone who at least visibly and perceivably might fall victim to the passing of judgment by Christians or being disqualified. And, you know, on, on the last week and at the biggest campus, the biggest church where, you know, 5,000 people could sit in this mega arena, he stood up as service was beginning and, you know, dressed as a homeless gentleman with a long beard and ratty coat, probably not smelling great, looking strange, to those who had donned their Sunday best, he pushed his grocery cart. Just imagine if they came in the back door right now. Pushed his grocery cart down the aisle in his megachurch. And I mean, can you imagine the men and the women, the children, people are aghast. You know, the elders are in their like running blocks are ready to do like an elder swarm. I mean, who is this crazy homeless guy? Who's, and all of a sudden he walks up on stage and he stands at the pulpit and he takes off his jacket and he takes off his beard and his hat 
and there standing before them is their pastor. How quick we are to judge and to pass judgment and to disqualify. Now, the flip side of the coin is a question to us. It's a question for you this morning as you sit based on your life, your past, your challenges, your baggage, the stuff you still struggle with. Are you free? Are you free in Jesus Christ? Because that's why he came. He came so that we could be set free. As churchgoers and 21st century Americans, we should at least ask the question, what's our version of this, right? How how do we qualify or disqualify? What do we see in the realm of preference that's worthy of our passing judgment? They're not doing it right. Well, this last year has given us plenty of examples. John mentioned a few of them last week. You know, perhaps you're not voting the right way. Or perhaps you don't eat the right way. Some of you might enjoy, you know, a beer or a glass of wine or something else, and the rest of you enjoy sadness. Uh, It's a joke. But you can almost hear on these questions of preference, you know, the fiddler on the roof screaming out, tradition! This is the way it's supposed to be done. This is what's required. This is what Christian church people do. And how little we realize that so much of that comes from our own life and experience and culture and family of origin and church family of origin and how you grew up. And yet we are so confident that actually it's the right way to do things. Or perhaps it's a more spiritual matter. Like the end times and your undoubtedly correct view of said end times, which I'm sure is wrong. Can't you wait to get to heaven and ask Jesus some of these questions? (laughs) Or the age of the earth? Or what friendship group you're a part of? Or what small group or Bible study you go to? Or what festivals and rituals and spiritual disciplines you partake of? The problem is that sometimes in doing these things and in noticing that others don't do them, we can feel powerful. We can feel more loved. Indeed, we can feel more qualified to be used and useful in the kingdom of God. We can feel rightly judged in the things we have added to the gospel and therefore justified in passing judgment on those who don't do them. Reminds me of that great story in Luke 18. I love this story because I'm both characters in this story, aren't you? It's the tax collector and the Pharisee. Oh, I love this story. The Pharisee, you know, he's a professional religious person like me. Undoubtedly, he has a black suit jacket from H&M that no longer fits and can't be buttoned like I do. And he walks into the temple. And he looks and he sees this lowly tax collector, traitor, you know, betrayer of the realm. Oh, God, thank you I'm not like that guy. Thank you I'm not like that guy. And then what does he do? He starts listing the stuff that he's good at doing. All these little religious, perfunctory works that he's succeeded performing. But the tax collector lifts his eyes up to heaven, beats on his chest and says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And as Jesus is telling this story amidst, you know, lawyers and fishermen, Scribes and soccer moms of the ancient day, 
he asks a simple question. Which one of these men went home justified? And that's precisely the problem that Paul is getting at here because it's a heart problem. It's a human problem. And this church hadn't even been around for 30 years and they're already in it. There's nothing new under the sun, my friends. There's at least a guy, probably a few people, men and women, a group in Colossae who are doing just this. They're saying, if you really want to be in, if you really want to be in the crew, a good Christian, a true Christian, you know, not just saved, but growing and being sanctified, you need to add these things to your life. And Paul has deep fatherly concern for this church. He's never been there. He didn't plant the church. He's heard this wonderful report about their faith in Christ through his friend Epaphras, or Epaphras. And he is eager, as a good, good father, to help them not go the way of their neighbor church, Galatians, and be re-enslaved by rules and traditions that he says not have little value, but ultimately no value for the indulgence of the flesh. Paul says, if we're going to live out our lives as Christians in community, we need to be constantly conscious of not reshackling the free, of not taking those who are free and different than you, and to equalize the playing field, requiring them to put chains back on. So in Colossia, this little faction of false teachers, and they've now identified those who are in and those who are out. Those who are in feel like they're okay because they're following the rules. So what do we see? Cancel culture comes to church. Y'all heard that term a little bit recently about cancel culture? And I'm I'm scared to live now in 2021. I mean, one single tweet, one single post on Facebook, one little misstep, and you can go from being in the tribe, in the realm, in the kingdom, to boot it out, career ruined, silenced, and canceled, and that's the end of that. And yet there's nothing new about it. In fact, it's not even a disease that can't permeate the membrane of a church. We have to be on guard. That's a good thing to talk about as we get toward Lent. Let me be very clear. I love liturgy. I love beauty. I love all these wonderful spiritual disciplines and practices that we enjoy here at this church. But that is a far cry as a response of gratitude to the grace of God. That is a far cry from saying, if I don't do that, God won't love me. Oh, and guess what? He doesn't really love you very much because you're not doing it either. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I catch myself seeing who showed up to church. In fact, today, there's a lot of people on the naughty list. No, I'm kidding. We know. Santa fans on ice. All right, we'll give them a pass. But folks, it's, it's important to remember that, that these things that we do, these spiritual disciplines, must be a response of gratitude for the grace of God and not in any way the presumption that they are necessary for receiving or being in the love of God. So one scholar put it this way this week. I just appreciated this quote, that the problem isn't fasting or rituals. The problem isn't even necessarily, um, you know, Paul says, beating my body that I might become obedient. The problem is insisting on it as a form of external righteousness. The problem is with making this practice requisite for you, lest you be disqualified. You can't run the race. You're not with Jesus. You're out. 
And perhaps that is why the Apostle Paul, when he went to another church with the same issues in Corinth, said in 1 Corinthians, I knew nothing among you. Nothing about angels and deities and ladders of being and secrets and practices and asceticism and rules and rituals and new moons and Sabbaths. I knew nothing except for Christ and Him crucified. Michael Horton wrote a really great book on justification. He's a former professor of mine. and He talks about, you know, how, how we're, we still are surrounded by movements just like this. Tribalism. Like-minded groupthink and confirmation bias. Horton's point is it's natural to do that. It's natural because of Adam and because of Babel and because of our longing for power and our foolishness of pride. But Horton asked this really wonderful question. He goes, okay, so you're, you're in the right group, right? You got the, the right politician or the right social justice issue or the right theory about the end times. You're in. And by the way, if you're in, be careful because it's hard to stay in because the rules are always changing. And the second the rules change and you didn't change with the rule, you're out. But for now, you're in, so that's good. You're righteous. You're protected by the boundaries of the tribe. That's the nature of religion. That's the nature of the world. And Horton asked this question. He says, okay, but is there any hope for the unrighteous? Is there any hope for the tax collector or the paralytic or the leper? Is there any hope for the ones that we are so quick to judge and disqualify? Is there any hope for the unrighteous? And to that, Paul brings us some really great news in this text. Let no one disqualify you. Not on these matters of preference. Let no one pass judgment. Let no one add rules to your Christian life. Don't taste, don't talk, don't touch. You know, I don't smoke or chew or go with girls who do. It's not going to help you be justified. In short, you are free. You are free in Christ. And there's three ways, of course, that he teases us out. First, you're free from extra rules, both the do and the do not. Secondly, you are free from inner dictators. Extra rules out there, inner dictators in here. And lastly, you are free in Jesus. A mentality of Jesus plus, Jesus plus these things I need to do to really be loved by Jesus always leads to a negative ledger in your own life. It always subtracts. Now, growing up, my mom used to tell me, beautiful only child that I am, that you just can't add to perfect. You know? But as we grow up and as we live our lives, what happens? We see more deeply. <laughs> we see more deeply the stuff that, man, is there and it's there. It's deep in the carpet, and we need help. So we have to back up to verse 13 here. That's why we read those extra verses. Before we get to the therefore, we need to remember who we are. You were dead. You didn't need medicine, right? You, you didn't need some kind of, you know, what is it like EpiPen deal. You didn't need one of those heart, heart boppers. What are they called? Somebody knows here. Beep, 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 you know, boom. That's the technical term, okay? You can look up the slang later. 
No, you were dead. Paul says, you don't ever get away from the resurrection. Don't ever get away from you were dead and you were raised. A gift, free. You could do nothing to save yourself. And he saved you and he loved you and he loves you. You were made alive. You were forgiven. Debt canceled. Rulers disarmed. Triumphed. And as John taught us last week, that, that Roman parade procession of triumph where they would drag back the enemy king at the back of the line and drag him all the way up to Caesar and he'd be publicly executed. In the same way, we're told that, that sin and the devil himself were put to open shame and destroyed by the work of Christ. Power made perfect in weakness. Why then would we ever go back? Like a dog that returns to its own vomit, the prophet says. Why would we ever go back to slavery? So what's the problem in Colossae and how does that help us understand the problem in our own day? Well, verses 16 through 18, Paul lays out a bunch of stuff, but it falls into two categories, okay? The first category is kind of this mystical Greco-Roman polytheism, meaning there's all these local deities and they make all these demands and they're very critical and they, you need to do stuff to make them happy, to grow your crops. Ah, but certain teachers in the church have secrets. They know secret handshakes. They have pointy hats. And they can help you, you know, navigate all that. The other problem, and it's a problem that's common as Paul is preaching the gospel in what would be referred to as the diaspora. So there's Jews all over the Greco-Roman Empire who are coming to faith in Christ. They are believing that Jesus, Yeshua, is the Messiah of God. But now all these weird Gentiles start coming in. And there's those with stars and those with no stars on bars. And before you know it, they're like, well, I think we need to add some rules here. Some Jewish mysticism starts to sneak in. As I said two weeks ago, you've got a little Madonna going on here. A little Kabbalah. Hierarchy of angels and, you know, new moons and Sabbaths and feasts and festivals. But both of these are equally extra-biblical. Do you see? Even though one is clearly pagan, although it's a secret knowledge... And the other one is derived, or at least ripped from the Old Testament. Both are equally problematic. Both are false teaching. This legalism that if I add the law, I'll be righteous, is no different than the asceticism. If I beat up my body, I can earn God's favor. Both promise an increased proximity to God. You want to get closer to God? Do this. And both have the exact opposite effect. And leave people feeling burdened. And leave people feeling just crushed under the weight of I'm never enough. Man, if, if that's what Christianity is about, what are we doing here? I mean, I work here, but why are y'all here? I mean, really, if that's what it adds up to, like, oh, great, you got saved at one point. And you believed and you were free, but oh, now it's time to start adding little, little pebbles into the backpack. You know, a little, little stuff you need to do. And by the way, don't just do it, but do it right. And don't just do it and do it right, but do it in public. And then make sure other people do it too. This gets us to the question of where the lie resides. The problem is false teaching, but the lie is that these things purport to make us more spiritual, more, more righteous, or give us insight into a higher life. I'm reminded of a movement in the 19th century in Britain called the Keswick or Keswick movement. If you haven't heard of it, that's fine. This movement, like so many others, 
going all the way back to Paul's day, basically said the following. You get Jesus as your Savior. That's simple. That's beautiful. That's by grace through faith. Oh, but then, you know, then you got to get got to get your friends into a dark room, you know, bring them down into the basement to sell them some soap. And then the question becomes, well, you have Jesus as your Savior, but do you have him as your Lord? Have you guys heard this? You know, you come in by grace through a Savior, but now you got to have Jesus as your Lord, now you need to, you know, he's committed himself to you as a savior. Now complete your commitment to him as your Lord. And don't get me wrong. Paul says everywhere in his letters that we don't just get to have this grace credit card like, woohoo, you know, let me head down to Macy's and do whatever I want. You know, I'm going to go out and just get hammered on beer and wine and Manischewitz and peach schnapps and all the weird stuff y'all drink. But it's cool. God doesn't care. No, he cares. His word is clear. You know, Proverbs 20, verse 1. I had to memorize this when I was a young Baptist at mid-school camp. Wine is a mocker. Beer is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by either is a fool. So yeah, the Bible's pretty clear about that. But that's not what's going on here. That's not the problem. The problem isn't gracious obedience to Jesus as a result of gratitude. The problem is false teachers saying, you need to do more and be more. You've had Jesus as your Savior, but now get him as your Lord. Oh, and by the way, buy my 40-step plan in this book, 1999, and I'll send you an anointed prayer cloth and teach you how. That's the lie. But friends, that's why there is an appearance of wisdom here. We're told that these arguments are plausible. Because inside each of us is, you know, a little inner, inner syncretist that wants to say, all right, Jesus, you do yours, I'll do mine, and then together we can make one. That's why Paul warns them about this stuff, because it does sound powerful. And hey, there's teachers in the church standing up. You know, they're spouting all this stuff. They're having visions. They're putting themselves in a seat of authority. And it sounds right. It sounds cool. We want secret knowledge. Paul says, be careful, because we're not as smart as we think. So to quote N.T. Wright, a principal appeal of Judaism in the ancient world for those Gentiles who came to the synagogue, God-fearers, was its high moral code. You know, you're going to have religion? That's great. Jesus welcomes the children. You know, come to me like a child, free, glorious imagination. You know, kids, they're like builders of worlds. They're like God in Genesis 1. They're amazing until they get, you know, jacked up by the world and their own sinful natures. Come like that, but, you know, now we need to get serious. Now we need to get serious about Jesus. Thanks for playing. Thanks for getting saved. Cool. Baptism, yes. Now let's get serious. And N.T. Wright says, people have become really tired of the murky, immoral paganism. You never really know what the gods want. It's always chaos, and the gods are battling, and what about my crops? And so they were drawn to a religious life with clear, bright lines. And Paul is saying, look, do not swing the pendulum from chaotic polytheism 
to what you feel like are the clear, bright lines of rules and religion. Instead, realize this. There's only one clear and bright line in the sand, and that is the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we are free from extra rules. We're also free from inner dictators. As New Mexicans like to say, it is Valentine's. Valentine's, bro. Come on. All right. Andale. And what Paul is telling us here is that not only are we free from the outer rules, but we're free from the guilt and the bondage and the baggage of our inner dictators, of what we feel or how we're doing, driving what's most true about our freedom in Christ. Sadly, the world around us, especially now, says what you feel, and especially when you feel happiest, that's what's most true. But we know that's a lie. And yet it's a lie that's it's very difficult for us to fight off because it's deep in our psyche. For the 48th time from Martin Luther, we are hopelessly meritorious. And so religion plays and preys upon that. These false teachers are predators on that very deep in our soul thing that can only be healed and helped by Jesus. The sense that we're not enough. And so we need to earn. Here we find the echoes of our first father, Adam. Isn't there more? And so it creeps in. It almost never just happens immediately, but it happens over time. And friends, I don't know about you, but I've, I've had a lot of buddies over the years who have fallen away from Jesus because of this. It's not, in a, it's not the problem of evil, okay? It, it, it's not William Lane Craig's contingency argument. It's not any of that intellectual stuff. I mean, Romans 1 is clear. Like, dude, look at the stars, look at the plants, look at the human eye. God is real. Simmer down. It's because of this. It's because the church said, come on in, saved by grace. And then the subtle creeping bait and switch. And years and years of do more, be more, you're not enough. And eventually, the whisper of the inner dictator gets the last word. That's why we're told that what you're looking for isn't in the shadows. Because the substance is Christ. The only qualification is Christ. And so many Christians that I know, myself included, are often guilty of this Stockholm Syndrome. Right? We want to run back to the meat pots of Egypt. I had a dear friend, a young lady, she was a missionary. Her dad was a doctor. She was so awesome and zealous for Jesus. And she had gone to do some work in Africa with IJM, International Justice Mission. It's a group that in various locations deals with, in particular, children who are caught up in sexual slavery. So like the gnarliest stuff you can imagine that I do not need to describe. But here's what she said that shocked me. She said, we'll come upon these houses, these places, basically these brothels. And there's kids in there. And, you know, we want to free these kids. But what we've realized is that actually there's a lot of these kids that don't want to be freed. Because they're, they're so afraid of the unknown. Even though they're living in hell, the crumbs of hell 
are better in, in that moment than the feast of freedom. And brothers and sisters, don't we so often live in that way when we allow the lies and the whispers to convince us that what we need is in the shadows. Paul says the substance is Christ. And lastly, you are free in Jesus. Paul says you have a head. You have Christ. You have the word of God. It is revealed. Now, the Bible isn't an easy book to understand. And some things are more difficult than others. But what is necessary to know is easy enough to understand. For God so loved the world. And therefore, love God and love your neighbor. Paul wants these folks to know you are really free. Because Christ is neither the chaos of polytheism, but nor is he the taskmaster of the law. He really is a loving Savior and a Lord who doesn't just love you once, but loves you in an ongoing way. And so Paul in verse 19 says, you will be nourished and grow. You don't need to live with two heads. You don't need to have Christ and then, you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the inner dictator. You don't need to, to, to live in a paralyzed thing of schizophrenia. Instead, all these things that have the appearance of wisdom are actually powerless. You know what I love about Santa Fe? There's some great churches here. I'm in this pastor's group. We hang out. We party. I love these guys. My homie right up the street here at Holy Trinity, Father Jesse, we're about to get together. I told him, I want you to wear your full robe. We're going to Lechosa, and I'll wear my bolo tie. And we can be like, you know, vested gangsters in Santa Fe and go eat some chili rellenos. And he's like, I do that every day anyway. If you wanted, you could go get liturgy every day of the week here. Head on down to see, you know, Father Robin and Holy Faith up the street. You could literally be practicing all this stuff 24 hours a day in Santa Fe. And Paul says, if that's coming out of a heart of gratitude and thankfulness for grace, if it's helpful for you, great. But he says, it, it, it will have no value to do the very thing you need, which is help with this flesh. It's not gratitude to deal with our guilt and then hopefully God's grace. It's guilt and then his grace all the way down and the result is gratitude. Paul says you died with Christ. You know what that means? It means all these little spirits that try to control and condemn and complain about you not being enough. They're powerless. And only Jesus raises the dead. This last week, I was in a Bible study with Dick Rotto and some other guys. We read Luke 5, where Jesus comes upon the leper. He was disqualified. And you know what happens in that story. Jesus takes out his rod and his staff and beats the dude up, leaves him bloody on the side of the road. Try harder next time. Don't get leprosy. Oh, wait, that's not what happened. No, instead, Jesus moves toward the disqualified and qualifies him by the power of his word. Then there's the paralytic who can't get in. He's lowered through the roof. He's disqualified. Jesus moves toward him. He's qualified. Then my favorite, the tax collector, Levi, who becomes Matthew, right? He's rich off the money of the Jews. Betrayer. And he throws this huge feast at his house. 
And the Pharisees and religious leaders are like, this cannot be. You cannot be a rabbi, Jesus, and call yourself a good rabbi and be eating with people like that. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. He's disqualified. Jesus says, no. He's free. So we come full circle to the question. Is there hope for the unrighteous? Not just those who have, you know, are in the right camp or the right circle, the right movement and all that. For now, so fickle. No different than the little gods of Colossae. Is there hope for the unrighteous? And the answer is yes. Because Jesus Christ himself took on flesh. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, if you are already complete in Christ, you are already qualified and you are free. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this wonderful letter to Colossian, the Colossians because, Lord, we, we see ourselves in here. And I'm so glad that even Paul's admonition against the false teachers isn't crushing to those of us who have little false teachers that sometimes run amok in our own hearts. Lord, I just think about 2020 and how many people were making prophecies and having visions about how sure they were about what was going to happen in politics or in the stock market or whatever. Lord, thank you that your kindness leads us to an opportunity to turn from adding anything to what you have done because we are complete in you. Thank you, Jesus, for the reminder that we don't come to you as Savior and then work toward you as Lord, but we have you in the fullness of who you are for us forever by grace alone. And now because of that good news, Lord, we don't have to obey you to earn your love, but we want to obey you because of your love. And Jesus, would you just make that so real and true to us now as we feast upon those promises at your table. Amen.